1: Support for Mississippi Edition comes from the Mississippi Museum of Art's
2: presentation of When Modern Was Contemporary. Selections from the Roy R. Newberger Collection. From Georgia O'Keeffe to Jackson Pollock. Details at msmuseumart.org.
0: Good morning, it's 8.30. I'm Paul Boger and this is Mississippi Edition on NPB Think Radio. On today's show, we talk with the mayor of Tupelo about the recent killing of an unarmed black man by a police officer there and the fallout of that tragic night. Then some business leaders in the state call for immigration reform.
1: It's really reached a level where, where it's, it's become uh, a detriment to economic development. Businesses can't, uh, can't expand. There's restaurants that would like to grow and uh, build in other parts of the state. But the, but the staffing issues is really keeping them from doing that.
0: Later, the state of gambling in Mississippi almost 25 years after it started and a collection of noir stories from Mississippi in our book club. That's all coming up. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. These are trying times for Tupelo. The northeast Mississippi town has been in the spotlight following the June 18th shooting death of an unarmed black man by a white police officer. A Lee County grand jury has cleared the officer of criminal action in the case, but the attorney representing the family of Antoine Ronnie Schumpert says federal authorities are conducting an independent review of his death. A civil lawsuit also has been filed against Tupelo. We spoke with Tupelo Mayor Jason Shelton about what the last few weeks have meant to his city, and whether civil unrest has come to town.
3: Well, I think that that civil unrest would be uh, a little strongly worded. There have been some you know, some assemblies, and uh, there's certainly some passionate individuals, but I don't think there's been any civil unrest in the city of Tupelo.
0: There was a grand jury decision yesterday with police officer Cook. Uh, Monday. On Monday, excuse me. Mm-hmm. There's been a vocal group in your community uh, that says that there was wrongdoing on his behalf, that he killed, unjustly killed Ronnie Shumpert.
3: Well, most of that is coming from um, not inside of the community, but outside of the community. We've uh, had a an outside attorney come in and, and spread uh, just patently false uh, information and uh, certainly has, has caused some distrust, but... Um, you know, I, I think most of that is coming from outside of the city of Tupelo.
0: I was up there on Saturday, and there were about four or 500 folks uh, marching through downtown mm-hmm. um, as part of that rally. Their criticisms were fairly strongly worded. Do you think that there's a trust gap between the residents of Tupelo or residents of that community and the police?
3: Well, I, I think that it'd be naive to say that there is zero or you know, no trust issues. Uh, there certainly um, is, but at the same time, the passion that has been caused over this incident has been the res- result of a very organized campaign of of disinformation to sensationalize the issue by someone tr- seeking to get a civil settlement out of the city of Tupelo. It's it's been very reckless. You know, attempting to use political pressure on the city of Tupelo to uh, get a civil settlement. And, uh, and I think it's it's just unfortunate that, that they've chosen to go about it this way. But what's happening is you have a organized group that is preying upon the very real heartfelt beliefs of good and innocent people. And it's just unfortunate. You know, we could have a civil... Conversation about real issues that exist, but unfortunately, you have just the reckless disregard for the truth, and that's what's taking place.
0: I'm assuming you're referring to Carlos Moore. Yes. You know, looking at that, do you, you know how how can you, in your administration, go about doing outreach with the community that feels affected by all of this?
3: Well, that's something that we've been trying to do for a couple of years now. We've created an out, outreach task force uh, that's funded by the. Tupelo City Council. Uh, we have been engaging in the, uh, you know, there's these calls for community-oriented policing, and that's something that Tupelo has a very long history of doing and something that we've continued to do uh, during this administration. mentioned the outreach task force. We have, you know, the Plant the Seed program, the Police Athletic League program here, award-winning uh, Police Athletic League uh, here. So, you know, the things that by and large, that we're being called upon to do or to enact are already being done.
0: Kind of going back to the the suit and the uh, the investigation, lawyers for Shumpert's family, uh, Carlos Moore, says federal investigators are looking into the case. Is that something that you or your administration or the, the police force, is that something you welcome?
3: Absolutely. We have been in contact with federal officials from day one. Uh, we have repeatedly said that the... Uh, you know, the U.S. Attorney's Office, the Department of Justice, the FBI, um, you know, we welcome them. Uh, What I think gets lost in the mix is that the city of Tupelo can neither make them investigate nor keep them from investigating. Uh, There's some sort of uh, disconnect with how that works. You know, if they feel like they should investigate, they're going to investigate. Uh, We uh, welcome that to blow. We welcome investigation by anyone. You know, the facts are what the facts are. And, you know, again, this out-of-town attorney coming in and spreading just patently false, sensationalist, reckless claims is what's causing the, the discontent.
0: A couple of days ago, there was a, a prayer meeting scheduled to kind of Take a look at what's going on in the community of Tupelo mm-hmm. right now. Um, maybe some of the racial matters that are going on, and after the grand jury decision or because of it, uh, that meeting was canceled. So right. whether it's it's the outside group stirring up the pot or not, there seems to be some division in your community, and it, it seems like it's going to take a little bit more to fix that. Is it you know? Am I right?
3: Well, the uh, prayer um, event, the Unity Prayer Rally, which I'm 100 percent supportive of, uh, was organized by a very diverse group of ministers uh, here in the city of Tupelo and in the Tupelo area. Um, After uh, the uh, grand jury result, a significant portion of the ministers uh, thought that the timing uh, might be wrong uh, for that, you know, of inviting the officer's family, the Schumpert family, uh, all the different congregations, that the timing um, may be uh, an issue. As far as I'm aware of, though, there is no um, lack of desire to come together. If there's that sentiment out there, then I have not been made aware of it.
0: That was Tupelo Mayor Jason Shelton talking with us on how his town is dealing with the fallout of the recent shooting death of an unarmed black man by a white police officer. Up next, some business leaders in the state call for immigration reform. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think
2: Radio. The new MPB Public Media app is available now. Watch MPB TV, listen to MPB Think and Music Radio, and stay in the know with MPB News. Search for the MPB Public Media app in the App Store and Google Play stores today. MPB is getting its very own car tag, but first, we need your help. To begin production, we need 300 of you to say yes to the tag. Go to mpbonline.org car tag for more information and also to sign up. A portion of the fee goes to help MPB continue to educate, inform, and entertain Mississippians. Thanks for your help, and we'll see you on the road.
0: This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Paul Boger. Some Mississippi business and political leaders are urging Congress to reform the nation's immigration system. According to the Mississippi Restaurant and Hospitality Association, the number one issue facing the industry is the quality and quantity of staff available. But the association says the country's cumbersome immigration system discourages restaurants from expanding. MPB's Desiree Fraser spoke with Mike Cashin, director of the association. He tells her the number of Mississippians aged 16 to 24 who often work in the industry isn't growing, and restaurants need immigrant workers.
1: The number one issue facing restaurants right now is the quality and quantity of staffing. Uh, it's it's really reached a level where where it's it's become uh, a detriment to economic development. Businesses can't uh, can't expand. There's restaurants that would like to grow, you know, build in other parts of the state, but the but the staffing issues is really keeping them from doing that. So what we're looking for is any way that we can legally expand. The employment base, so that restaurants can staff not just at staff at, at an entry-level staff position, but also managers and owners as well.
4: In terms of bringing uh, folks here, have they found it hard to recruit?
1: It's not so much that it's hard to recruit, but going through the E-Verify process is going to obviously identify those folks that are here illegally, and restaurants are not going to hire you know those folks that are not that are, that don't qualify under the E-Verify program.
4: Well, we know that there are a lot of folks here illegally. What impact is that having, if any, on restaurants? Are they able to find some source of workers?
1: They're finding the traditional source of workers, but that, that, that as the restaurant industry expands and the number of jobs expands, our job growth is not keeping up with the growth of our labor pool. So we're, it's just simple math. We're just not keeping up.
4: Overall, what is Mississippi's restaurant industry like?
1: Uh, We have over 4,300 restaurants generating $4 billion in sales. The average restaurant does about $800,000 in sales, which is not a tremendous amount of volume. Operates on a very small profit margin. Um and you know, we've had steady growth uh in, in since the two thousand seven, two thousand eight decline in the economy. Uh, it's been steady but 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 nominal. It hasn't been tremendous growth. Uh we, we lost jobs for a period of years as a lot of other industries have, but we've picked those back up and we're back up on a on a positive trend
4: now. Immigration is a contentious issue as you know. It is. Uh the Republican nominee for President Donald Trump has talked uh, aggressively about building a wall. How does that impact the restaurant industry?
1: I'm not sure that it would impact the restaurant industry, quite honestly. Uh, And I can't speak for Donald Trump. I'm I'm, I'm not part of his campaign. Uh, But I I surmise that the the wall is more of a a national security issue, the way I'm hearing it, uh, and not as much of an economic development issue.
0: MPB's Desiree Fraser with Mike Cash, and director of the Mississippi Restaurant and Hospitality Association. Mississippi Farm Bureau Insurance works with many farmers across the state. Mike McCormick is president of the Farm Bureau Federation. He tells Desiree Frazier that red tape and guest worker programs can leave crops dying on the vine.
5: Nationally, uh, Farm Bureau knows that we have a a big problem uh, with H-2A workers, uh, our guest worker program, and our national organization has taken part in this uh, campaign nationwide to bring awareness of the problems that our farmers are having uh, with the shortage of labor.
4: What is the struggle for uh, businesses, and I assume you must uh, insure a lot of farmers?
5: Well, Farm Bureau Federation is a farm organization. We were set up to lobby the interest of farmers and people who live in rural areas. So it's not about an insurance uh, uh, situation. It's about protecting our farmers who have a lot invested in crops and not being able to get those to market. It's uh, about their financial futures.
4: And how does the problems with immigration
5: impact farmers? Well, our farmers cannot find, like I said, we, we were just surf, uh are having a a shortage of farm labor workers here in the United States. Uh, Our labor force has decreased by over 20 percent in the last 10 years. Uh, We must find a uh, a reliable and usable workforce somewhere else, and that's going to be migrant labor or or labor from other countries uh, if we're going to be able to supply the food that our consumers need here in the United States.
0: MPB's Desiree Frazier with Mike McCormick, president of the Mississippi Farm Bureau Federation, Up next, the state of gambling in Mississippi almost 25 years after it started. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. More than two centuries ago, the first American president took office.
2: And next year, the 45th will take office.
0: Follow history in the
2: making. Right here on this station.
6: Listen every day. Weekdays at 4 on MPB Think Radio. Marathon swimming is a grueling physical test, 6.2 miles in open water.
4: You have to be a little weird to want to put yourself through, like, two hours or more of pain.
6: And Haley Anderson will have to persevere in Rio's notorious polluted waters, an athlete driven to excel later on All Things Considered from NPR News. Today at 4 on NPB Think Radio.
0: This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Paul Boger. Casinos in Mississippi are set to enter their 25th year of operation, and leaders in the industry are gathering to take stock and prepare for the years ahead. One consensus, adaptation is key to success down the road. MPB's Evelina Burnett spoke with Alan Godfrey, head of the State Gaming Commission. He tells her the last quarter century has taken the industry in the state to unexpected places.
7: 25 years ago, I was standing on the boat, the Isle of Capri, uh, in the count room. I was there when they opened that boat. I worked for the Mississippi State Tax Commission at the time.
6: When you look back at the past 25 years and where we are today, is this where you sort of were hoping we would be, or or where do you see kind of going forward?
7: 25 years ago, I don't think anybody thought we would be standing right here in in an IP uh, casino and hotel it's such a magnificent structure. I, th- I think we were all pleasantly surprised at the, um, the crowds that showed up and the market uh, and the industry that has become what, what we are today.
6: Was there any thought back then that there might be gaming everywhere in you know, Louisiana and, and all, almost all of our neighboring states, even Alabama, at uh, some of the travel casinos?
7: I don't think we thought about anything but how to regulate this industry. It jumped on us so fast. And uh, you know the tax commission oversaw gaming at that time, and then two years after that, the gaming commission became its own entity. So you had the creation of a new industry under the the roof of another agency, then turned it over to the gaming commission in 1993. So I, I think we were all caught by surprise, but it's been it's just been it's been tremendous. That, that's all I can say is you know do I think we would have ever been here uh, 25 years ago? I don't think we had time to think about it. But I look back 25 years ago, I'm, I'm just very fortunate to have been a part of such a, 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 a growth industry.
6: So what are some of the lessons learned or some things maybe that you wish you had, you or the gaming industry or the gaming regulators had done differently over the past 25 years?
7: You know, we, we started off with a real good model. And, and the Nevada model, and you know, when when you follow something that works, it's it's you know, you look back now 25 years and, and look at look at the properties. We've got 28 to 30 properties. That's uh, kind of been the average throughout the, those years, 25 years, and, and the properties just continue to reinvest. So I can't say that I would go back and change a lot of anything. I would say. So far we've done it right. I think we do need to look ahead to to try and protect what we've got and predict what's going to happen around us because growth is coming and how do we maintain what we have. MPB's Evelina Burnett with Alan Godfrey of the Mississippi Gaming Commission. Up
0: next, a collection of noir short stories from Mississippi in our book club. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.
7: 227 years ago, the first U.S. president took office. Next year, the 45th will follow history in the making right here on this station listen every day
6: weekdays at four on mpb think
4: radio
7: your favorite mpb think radio shows are now available on your favorite podcast app so open that app and subscribe to any local program you love like everyday tech
6: android does have the most delicious operating system I Ge- oh. jelly Bean. the gestalt gardener what's up what you got going on
7: And, of course, MPB's Season Pass with myself, Sam Wells, and Jay White. That's my guys, man. So what are you waiting for? Go search and subscribe today.
0: This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Paul Boger. Most likely when you think of noir fiction, you think of rain-slick big cities and smoky bars. But a new collection of short stories wants to change that to replace the asphalt jungle with back roads and bayous. In the collection Mississippi Noir, editor Tom Franklin brings together a variety of writers from the state to take a look at how noir plays out in a more rural setting. Franklin speaks with MPB's Karen Brown in today's book
2: club. Noir is a close cousin to hard-boiled fiction. Hard-boiled fiction is where a kind of down-on-his-luck detective is trying to solve a crime. So Noir as its cousin is not about the detective, but it's about a suspect or a victim or, or a perpetrator even. So it's a darker view of hard boiled
6: As editor, you're collecting the stories and the author and or the authors. Do you actually edit their work?
2: In some cases I did. The stories, you know, were written for the book. So I asked the writers to write stories set in Mississippi. And in certain cases, I would say, you know, you're known for this area. Can you write a story about this area? And so the writer would, would say, sure. And in that case, you know, I would get the, I'd get the story back and it would be brand new. No one else would have seen it. So it would need an objective set of eyes on it. So I don't think I did a lot of editing on any stories, but I edited a lot of them.
6: Now tell us about the authors. We have some well, well-known writers and then some not as well-known.
2: I need to upfront say that John Grisham Greg Isles and Thomas Harris are not in the book, and it's not because I did not try to get them in there. I wrote to Grisham, who very graciously wrote back and said, I don't have the story right now, but if I did, I'd give it to you. I'm working <laughs> on a novel. You know, but Thanks for thinking of me. He's always working
6: I, on a novel. When is he not working, working on a novel? But he's also a terrific
2: short story writer. His collection, Ford County, is amazing. I've, I taught that in my Mississippi short story writers class at Ole Miss. And Greg Isles, you know, was working on that massive Natchez trilogy. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. he he said, I, you know, I'm just overwhelmed with work. But he gave us a terrific quote for the front of the book. And I couldn't even find Thomas Harris. He famously wrote Red Dragon yeah. and The Silence of the Lambs. And I think lives in Italy somewhere now, but he's from Mississippi. So I tried to get the three heavy hitters and, and was unable to. I got Ace Atkins, who lives in Oxford now. I got Megan Abbott, who is from Detroit originally and lives in New York. But was our John and Verne Grisham writer in residence at Ole Miss for a year. Jack Pendarvis has a hilarious story in here. So, I mean, you know, it's, it's dark, but there are also you know, some very funny stories in here as well. William Boyle, who has published his first novel called Gravesend, and then a collection of stories. He's in here. Mary, Mary Miller, she has a story called Uphill that I really love. We have Chris Offutt in here and Michael Ferris Smith, Lee Durkee, Robert Busby, John M. Floyd. And then Unknown Writers. The Unknown Writers, uh, Domenico Dickey, is writing right now a novel, and she has an agent already signed up with it, and it's amazing. It's set in Grenada in 1936, and her character is the African-American woman who's the hairdresser in Grenada in 1936, and her granddaughter goes missing, and she has to find this baby. And so she becomes a kind of detective character, but there's never been a detective character who has less power. So she has to manu- maneuver this, this minefield of racism to try to find her grandchild. You know, And the story that novel came from is in here, it's in this book.
6: You so also, cool. you said that one of the stories is hilarious. Now, you don't necessarily think of comedy when you think of noir.
2: No, you don't. Um, but this is such a takeoff or a send up of noir that it fits perfectly. It's just kind of, it's, it's a bit different tone wise, but, it, but in, in a way it's the most noir story of all in, in its way.
6: The book is divided into four parts. Why is that?
2: The the publisher wanted that. That was their choice. I just sent them a bunch of stories. Honestly, I had way more than the book could hold. I said to to the publisher, you know what? I love all these. You pick. You pick the ones you want. So they chose, I guess it's the 16 or so in here, um, and they divided them into the sections. That that was their choice. I I liked the idea of them. Of them, dividing them into the four.
6: Now, the other uh, thing about this, I think, is appealing to readers is if you're put off by books that are inches thick, these are short stories, and they really are sort of short stories. You can read them in a sitting.
2: Absolutely, you know. And Edgar Allan Poe, who kind of invented the short story, said that it should be an experience to be enjoyed in one sitting. So that's one reason I love I love sh- the short story genre because you know you know in this fast paced world, it's hard to sit down and read. for two or three or four hours as a novel needs you to do. But with a story, you can finish it, you know, in half an hour. It's like fast food, but but, but good, healthy fast food.
6: But very dark fast food. (laughs) Very dark. All right. The book is called Mississippi Noir, and we've been speaking with Tom Franklin, who is the editor, who pulled it all together. Tom, thank you so much for being with us.
2: Well, Karen, thank you so much. It's great to talk to you again.
0: Stay tuned to MPB Think Radio for local, Mississippi-based programs all morning long. Coming up at 9, it's Creature Comforts. Then at 10, MPB Season Pass. And at 11, stay tuned for Southern Remedy. If you missed part of the show today, there are several ways you can listen on our website, mpbonline.org, through the MPB Multimedia app, or search for Mississippi Edition in your favorite podcasting app. You can subscribe to the show and get a notification every time a new one's posted. It's easy, so try it. I'm Paul Boger. Join us again tomorrow morning at 8.30 for the next Mississippi edition, only on MPB Think Radio.
2: Support for Mississippi Edition comes from the Mississippi Museum of Art's presentation of When Modern Was Contemporary. Selections from the Roy R. Newberger Collection. From Georgia O'Keeffe to Jackson Pollock. Details at msmuseumart.org. It's Marketplace Tech for Thursday the 4th. I'm Ben Johnson in New York. A report out this week says that more